Welcome to Middle East Matters, a new podcast from the Middle East Initiative at Harvard University's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. My name is Tarek Massoud. I'm a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and the faculty director of the Middle East Initiative. In this podcast, we'll bring you conversations with scholars, newsmakers, and artists from one of the world's most exciting and dynamic regions, the Middle East. To stay up to date on our latest episodes, please be sure to subscribe to Middle East Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other popular streaming services. You can also find our episodes on our website at belfercenter.org MEI. And please be sure to follow us on Twitter at Middle East underscore HKS. Welcome, everybody, to our series of conversations with Arab thought leaders on the state of the United States leading up to and now in the aftermath of the 2020 U.S. election. Uh, my name is Tarek Massoud. I am a professor of public policy at the John F. Kennedy School of Government and the faculty director of the Middle East Initiative here. And it's my pleasure to welcome you along with my co-host, uh, Ambassador Karim Haggag of the School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the American University in Cairo. How are you, Karim? I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm holding my breath on the results of the U.S. elections. Uh, as, we, as we all are. Um, so what we've been doing over the past two months is that each week, Karim and I have been meeting with leading Arabs from the worlds of policy, practice, and ideas to explore their perceptions of the current election, their sense of where the United States is heading, and what all of this means for the Arab world and the Middle East. So far in this series, we've interviewed Iraqi Prime Minister Ayad Alawi, the Emirati intellectual Abdel Khaliq Abdullah, the Kuwaiti Palestinian journalist Ahmed Shahabuddin, the uh, Emirati and Iraqi journalist Mina Al-Urebi, the Lebanese journalist Raghida Dergham, and the Egyptian, former Egyptian foreign minister Nabil Fahmi. And those conversations will soon be available actually on the Middle East Initiative's podcast, Middle East Matters, so you can relive them uh, at your uh, pleasure. We're going to take a quick hiatus in December, but then we'll be back in the spring when we hope to kick off the series with an interview with the Palestinian legislator and activist, Dr. Hanan Ashrawi. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Karim Haggag. And what we want to do today is dive right into uh, what will be the last of our conversations this semester. And I think it's fair to say that we've saved uh, the best for last. So, our speaker today has amassed such an impressive record in his small number of years on this planet that he almost requires no introduction. Uh, Mohammed Al Yahya is the editor in chief of Al Arabiya English, which is the English language outlet of the Dubai based Al Arabiya satellite news channel. He's also a senior research fellow of the Gulf Research Center. And prior to that, he was a fellow of the Atlantic Council and of the King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies in Riyadh. He's published very widely 
on the geopolitics of the Gulf, including in such places as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Newsweek. And he really is one of the freshest and most insightful voices on Arab affairs who is writing today. He is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania. And if I told you the year in which he graduated, which was so recent, you would probably not believe me, especially given uh, uh, how uh, insightful and uh, mature he is. So welcome, Mohammed. We're really glad to have you with us. Thank you very much for this introduction. I really don't deserve it, uh, Tarek. And I must say it's unfair for me to be the last person in the series because of uh, uh, the fantastic lineup of speakers that you, you, you brought in. Uh, uh, but, uh, but I'm glad to be here and uh, thank you for the privilege. You know, I remember when you told me that I'd be speaking about the election on November 17, and I told you who's going to be listening about the election on November 17. You said you'd be surprised, you know, at that point in time. I don't think this will be solved in the first uh, week or two weeks. The fact that still today uh, uh, there are uh, uh, debates on this and there are people in the streets and there's a controversy surrounding this is uh, something I uh, think I'm not alone in finding uh, surprising. Yeah, absolutely. And so I guess our first question for you is if you could give us a sense of what the reaction has been in the in the Arab world, or at least in the parts of the Arab world you're most familiar with, what's been the reaction to the results of the election and to the uncertainty around the results of the election? I mean, U.S. elections have always been, uh, uh, you know, uh, a very important pastime in the Middle East. They've always been watched, uh, regardless of, of uh, the parties that were involved. This year, uh, the party is uh, now on its third week instead of one that was uh, uh, just one election. You know, people are still speaking about uh, presidents uh, uh, and and uh, uh, the history of U.S. elections. You know, something to consider, and I'm sure this is something you know very well. Political literacy, even amongst ca- taxi drivers in Egypt or in, in, in any Arab country. Is very high, and it's it's higher, I think, than political literacy is, uh, even in in, uh, in North America. So, so and current what... affairs literacy, rather. So, 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 you know, speaking about the latest headline uh, with somebody in the street in the Arab world is much easier than doing so uh, uh, in a random city in the United States. I think. And so, you know, if you're if you were to characterize what people are saying about the election, so. One thing that you often hear in the United States now is that our inability now, three weeks after the election, to to definitively settle on a winner and have everybody line up behind that winner might actually undermine the reputation of democracy and of elections as a way of choosing leaders. Are we hearing some of that in the Arab world? I mean, I wouldn't go that far, I think. At least from what I've seen, there aren't any, uh, you know, big discussions about the efficacy of democracy as a result of this. People are taking this very lightheartedly. People are, are, are looking at this to a large degree as entertainment. Of course, there are real uh, debates that are being had uh, across the region on uh, what uh, the policies of a second term uh, Trump would have been what the policies of uh, Biden will be in the region, a comparison to what uh, the Obama administration uh, chose to have in terms of policies in the region. All of these things are things that people discuss uh, uh, frequently and that uh, people are looking at. And, and uh, 
there is a large degree of uncertainty. I mean, we have to remember that uh, many people in the Gulf are very excited that uh, Hillary Clinton uh, 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 might become president. Uh, and everybody expected uh, Hillary Clinton to win. I remember that night uh, I was in, in Washington, D.C., and I spoke to several journalists, all of whom wanted to just file in their copy uh, and go to uh, uh, um, election parties. Uh, and uh, I spoke to a few of them on what uh, Hillary Clinton meant for the Gulf region. Uh, and I went to a, a viewing uh, uh, event myself. Uh, and everybody was shocked to see that uh, Donald Trump uh, won... Uh, 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 and uh, that he became president. Um, the expectation was that uh, Donald Trump would be horrible for the region, horrible for the Gulf. You know, people uh, remembered what he said about making the Arabs pay, making Iraq pay for uh, uh, protection. So, so uh, I mean, uh, the discourse, at least in the Gulf, was that Hillary Clinton is more on our page in terms of Syria, more on our page in terms of Iran, uh, 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 you know, we deal with establishment Democrats. Hillary Clinton is exactly that. Uh, we don't want any more of this uh, 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 innovation uh, in terms of dealing with uh, uh, the region that we've seen uh, under uh, the Obama administration. Uh, and, and, and what we saw in the four years after that is totally the opposite. I mean, uh, actors in the Gulf saw that uh, 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 Donald Trump uh, was not uh, their worst nightmare, as uh, people uh, feared. So I think people are coming into uh, assessing uh, uh, the significance of this election with a degree of humility right now, precisely because, uh, uh, you know, the, the Donald Trump presidency was uh, such a wild card for the region. So, Mohammed, if uh, I can ask you to maybe expand on that and talk a little bit about the Arab media coverage of uh, this election, and, and in particular, literally the, the pan-Arab media, what are the op-ed pages saying? What, what are the issues raised? What are the issues raised in the Arab uh, talk shows um, about how the, the, uh, a potential Biden administration would approach the region, and what are the expectations? That's an important question, I think. Uh, there are several issues that I, I'm sure we'll discuss uh, in a little bit more, more detail. Iran is something that's very important, uh, and the Arab press will uh, uh, President Biden return to uh, the Iran nuclear deal? Will he uh, sign a new deal uh, with the Iranians? Will it be a larger deal? Will it, will it be just a nuclear deal? Will it cover uh, Iran's expansion in the region, its ballistic missiles program? All of these are questions that are being asked, not just in the regional uh, press, but also in the U.S. press and European press. So, so uh, that's definitely something that's important. Um, but uh, 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 yeah, yeah. So. Maybe this, this would be a, a good opportunity to begin a, a sort of a deep dive into some of this. So the, the general sentiment that one picks up from the Arab uh, commentary on the elections is this anxiety that a potential Biden administration would uh, be a, a return to the very problematic uh, policies uh, undertaken by uh, the Obama administration. 
So can, can you be, begin to unpack that for us? What, what are the causes uh, of this anxiety? I, I mean, you mentioned the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, perhaps this would be a good opportunity to explain uh, the reason for that anxiety. And of course, it was not just the Iran issue, but there were a host of issues that related to the general approach of the, uh, of the Obama administration towards the region. Um, do, do you think that anxiety is justified? Of course, that's an excellent question, I think. Um, there is anxiety, um, but I don't think, um, look, there, there were many uh, articles and, and, and if you look at the discourse in, in the US media, uh, uh, you would, uh, um, uh, you know, come out of the conclusion that people are panicking in the Gulf, people are panicking in the Arab world, that they've got a free ride for four years under the Trump administration, and that uh, um, their worst nightmare would be uh, a, a Joe Biden presidency. I think that couldn't be farther from the truth. Uh, that has no um, uh, 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 relation to the reality that I see uh, in front of me every day in the region. People are not panicking. Uh, people are uh, uh, people are anxious about uh, uh, a number of issues. Iran is one of them, but I don't see panic. Uh, uh, people are hopeful. Uh, and I think we forget where uh, uh, there are, issues, there are uh, convergences of interest with Europe, with uh, uh, the Democratic Party in the United States, uh, and that's important. But uh, uh, it's important to contextualize all of this, I think. Um, the media in the U.S. and and uh, political uh, uh, and the discourse among political pundits in the U.S. sometimes has a short memory, uh, and 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 the Donald Trump presidency is a very very um, uh, unorthodox, uh, to say the least, presidency. Um, I think there was a lot of assumption that the close ties between the White House uh, and uh, Saudi Arabia or the White House and the Gulf states was something that is a hallmark of the Trump presidency, something new when in fact it wasn't new. Uh, it's true that under the Obama administration, as you mentioned, uh, as well, uh, uh, the points of contention uh, uh, between the White House and uh, Gulf actors maybe were at their highest, uh, while there was still strategic alignment. I mean, there was still strategic alignment that Iran was a bad actor that needed to be dealt with. There, was a lot of, there were a lot of tactical disagreements on this, but that was a strategic alignment. Uh, um, uh, but of course, there were uh, uh, policy disagreements. I mean. Uh, Egypt was a huge policy disagreement between uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE on one side and the Obama administration on the other. Um, uh, tactically with Iran, uh, I mean, the Saudis weren't even included in, in uh, the discussions on the JCPOA. Uh, Oman is the only Gulf country that knew. Uh, and that was something that uh, America's partners in the region all found problematic, especially since uh, all of them are within the, the range of Iran's ballistic missiles, but they were left out of the security agreement it was signed by the P5 plus one, none of whom are within range of Iran's ballistic missiles or even close to any of Iran's proxies. So that, that was a problem. Uh, and also Saudi Arabia's intervention in Bahrain uh, was a, a point of contention uh, with, uh, with uh, um, uh, the US administration. Uh, but it's important, uh, I think, uh, to keep in mind that there are also, uh, that, that strategically there is a, a, a huge overlap. Uh, and there is uh, alignment on almost every uh, important issue. Um, and that this is something uh, that will continue with, uh, with the Biden administration. And it's important to consider that there is even more alignment with the Biden administration than some Republican administrations on issues like uh, uh, Erdogan's Turkey. 
you know, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states are in complete alignment with uh, uh, Western European uh, actors, with Germany, with uh, uh, Democrats in the United States about uh, uh, Erdogan's uh, push into the Mediterranean on uh, the way uh, he's funding uh, Islamist uh, and backing Islamist groups across the region. Uh, uh, they're on the same side as France and Libya uh, uh, and elsewhere in the region. So, so uh, there could be disagreements uh, on how to deal with Iran, but uh, they could be counterbalanced on, on uh, uh, agreement on, on how to deal with Turkey and vice versa. But, you know, Mohammed, I, I think we agree with your read of the of the uh, uh, possibilities for uh, a, a alignment between a Biden administration and the interests of the major Arab countries. But you know, you, I, I am surprised that you you s make it sound as if this thing that we've all been witnessing for the last four years, which is uh, tremendous affection for this particular administration in Arab capitals is not really a thing. I mean, in our interviews, for example, we've, we've seen, you know, to the extent that, the, um, that the, the chancelleries of Arab power had felt that they had a horse in this race, it really did seem like they were plumping for Donald Trump. Sure. And I... <laughs> And I can see why it would seem like that to, 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 um, uh, uh, to many people. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, uh, just take the, the Iran deal as an example. That was a yeah. huge security agreement that changed the face of the Middle East. Uh, uh, for actors in the region, uh, uh, it uh, empowered Iran to expand uh, into Iraq and to uh, Syria. It caused... Uh, uh, you know, death and destruction in these countries. Hundreds of thousands of Syrians were slaughtered. Yemen uh, uh, was uh, uh, overrun by uh, the Houthi militia that is funded and uh, armed by Iran. All of these things happened uh, 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 in, in, in many people's minds here in the region as a result of a deal that was signed without the knowledge of governments that have to live with the consequences of it every yeah. single day. So if, they, if, if, if this is how they see the eight years uh, under President Obama uh, and under uh, the Iran nuclear deal, to have a, a White House that is back to involving them, uh, uh, back to its, its um, uh, uh, natural position of uh, uh, doubling down on its allies uh, and standing firmly against its adversaries, uh, which is traditionally what U.S. administrations, uh, Democrat and Republican alike have done, uh, uh, before the Obama administration, uh, you know, that is considered a return to normalcy and uh, a breath of fresh air. So, so if you want to consider uh, uh, which policies were aberrant uh, in terms of uh, traditional U.S.-Gulf uh, relations, it's the policies that were witnessed under uh, uh, the administration of uh, uh, Barack Obama, regardless of what you think of them. Maybe you would think that, uh, you know, uh, we've been trying the wrong things in the Middle East and it's important to uh, you know, uh, shake things up a little bit, uh, and that's what President Obama uh, did. You know, that's uh, that's uh, uh, regardless of, of, of what you might think on those issues. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, but but the but, unorthodox but, uh, part was that. But you know, the, and I, I I understand what you're saying. But again, when I think of unorthodoxy, it 
you know, I, I think of Trump. So, so you, you know, the way you framed it is Trump represented a return to normalcy, a return to a period in which America's allies in the Gulf could count on the United States to double down in support of its allies. That's what, that's what you said. And I guess what has always been puzzling for me is why uh, uh, anybody in the Arab world would have actually thought that about Donald Trump. You yourself noted the discourse that President Trump used before he got elected. But it actually, you know, about how we're going to make these people pay and the Saudis have to pay for their security, et cetera, et cetera. But the New York Times reported last September, President Trump said, I'm bringing our troops back from Afghanistan. I'm bringing our troops back from Iraq. We're almost out of every place. At another event, Times says he, he promised to keep America out of these endless, ridiculous, stupid foreign wars in countries that you've never even heard of. And now we see he's actually trying to make good on that promise. He's not even as consistent on Iran as uh, they would like him to be in the Gulf. Yes, he's made some noises about bombing Iran. But if you look, just the most recent appointment that he made to the Defense Department, uh, retired Colonel Douglas McGregor, this is a guy who's actually said we need to listen very carefully to the Iranians to find out what their interests are and to look for areas where we can cooperate. That's a quote. Elliot Abrams recently tweeted that actually Trump and Biden weren't so different on Iran because if Trump got elected, he was going to reopen negotiations with Iran. And that raises the specter of the president initiating the kind of conversations with uh, Iran's supreme leader that he initiated with Kim Jong-un that could actually re rehabilitate Iran. So I guess, help me understand why the leaders in the Gulf never saw this and instead saw in Donald Trump somebody who would, to quote you, stand firm and fed steadfast in support of allies. Well, I would disagree about his consistency with Iran. He has been consistent, but that's no uh, uh, marker of whether he would remain consistent. I think if the Iranians came to uh, uh, President Trump with a, a deal that uh, beat uh, that, that significantly or satisfactorily even uh, beat uh, uh, Obama's JCPOA, he might have signed it uh, to the detriment of uh, uh, certain Gulf actors. But I think at the end of the day, it's important to note that, uh, 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 you know, um, uh, stalling Iran for four years, uh, reversing the gains that it made on the ground in countries where it has its militia spread is still something that's a net gain for uh, these uh, Gulf countries. Now, it so happened that he did not make this deal with Iran, and we don't know if there's going to be uh, a deal made or what the contours of, of, of this deal will be made. But uh, there was a threat recently uh, that military action is not off of uh, the table with Iran. But we also have to consider uh, what the tangible benefits uh, 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 of uh, the Iran policy we saw over the past four years are. Um, you know, Qasem Soleimani was eliminated. Qasem Soleimani is, uh, uh, was the engine uh, or behind Iran's regional expansion network. The fact that he's out of the picture is something that is, deals a huge blow uh, uh, to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard uh, and their ability to, to prosecute their foreign policy and their regional policy uh, um, in the region. The, the, the number two of Al-Qaeda was, was eliminated by the Israelis at the behest of the, of the Americans, according to the New York Times, in uh, a posh uh, neighbor, neighborhood in uh, North Tehran. You know, that's a huge piece of news that everybody just uh, uh, brushed by. 
uh, when Osama bin Laden was killed, that made headlines for weeks and weeks on end. The same thing with Baghdadi, even uh, Qasem Soleimani. Somebody like the, uh, uh, Abu Khair al-Masri or Abu Muhammad al-Masri, uh, uh, the number two in Al-Qaeda, is a huge deal when it comes to counterterrorism. That's that, that, that introduces a series of questions. You know, uh, um, one, uh, the United States entered uh, Iraq, invaded Iraq, uh, based on, on several false pretenses. One of those false pretenses was that Saddam Hussein had an, uh, a relationship with Al-Qaeda. He didn't have any relationship with Al-Qaeda. It turns out that the leaders of Al-Qaeda are all uh, in Iran. Abu Khair al-Masri, who was uh, killed along with his daughter, who's the late widow of, some of, of Hamza bin Laden, they both got married in Tehran, by the way. So the, I mean, the entire extended families of, of the Al-Qaeda's top leadership, uh, Al-Qaeda royalty, have been living uh, like royalty in, in, in uh, uh, in Tehran, all of this uh, uh, is is uh, uh, something that uh, 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 has been exposed uh, to a large degree by by uh, the operation against uh, Abu Khair al-Masri. Um, so, so if you look at this uh, uh, pressure strategy, at the sanctions regime that was leveled on Iran, uh, Iran's militias in the regions are suffering, and this is something that is tangible for people that live here, that live in the Middle East. You know, Iranian militias require, or Iranian-funded militias, mostly it's Arab Shias or, or uh, South Asian Shias that are fighting on behalf of Iran. Uh, seldom do they send actual Iranians or Persians to fight uh, the IRGC. Uh, uh, these people, uh, uh, these militias cannot uh, uh, be maintained with uh, uh, Tuman or with Iraqi currency or with Syrian currency. You need cold, hard US dollars and US cash to maintain uh, these militias. Uh, and that has dried up from the coffers of the Revolutionary Guards and from the coffers of Iran as a result of uh, uh, the sanctions. The sanctions deprive the regime of much needed dollars that are required to, to maintain its regional, bloated regional pro proxy network. That is a tangible benefit that people uh, feel in the region. So even in the worst case scenario, uh, the one uh, uh, similar to what you described where, where President Trump is just a deal maker and he wants to come back and say, uh, you know, let's make a deal and reverse uh, what we've done four years uh, uh, with the Revolutionary Guards on a back foot, with the machine that produces uh, militias so quickly on, a back, on the back foot. It's something that is a net gain for the region. The alternative to that would have been uh, more uh, U.S. dollars being given to a regime like uh, Iran's, would have been opening up to a regime like uh, Iran, would have been the proliferation of more uh, 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 proxies uh, in the region, and that would have been something that uh, would have been very harmful. I mean, we've seen uh, firsthand the effect of that on the popular mobilization units in uh, in Iraq uh, up until uh, throughout, throughout the past 10 years. Uh, we've seen that in, in Syria. We have Afghani and Pakistani uh, Shia militias fighting there. And you know, uh, uh, Professor Masoud, some of these uh, 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 fighters are shipped in from Afghanistan and Pakistan, promised residency if they go fight in Syria and then uh, uh, survive and come back to Iran. Uh, some of these uh, fighters they discovered, and they, they were transported on Iran's official airlines, they discovered after they reached uh, Syria that they couldn't fight and they couldn't be trained. And some of the, many of them have starved to death because feeding them was too expensive for uh, uh, the Syrian government and for the Iranians. Uh, and it, it turned out that they were cannon fodder and that uh, um, there was no plan uh, to return uh, 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 most of these fighters back uh, to their homes. So, so, you know, any sanctions regime that works to chip away at this uh, uh, regional structure 
uh, is something that is uh, is useful. So, so Mohammed, if we can perhaps press you a little bit uh, again on the Iran issue uh, to, to ask, what should the Biden administration do on the threat posed by Iran? Because it's interesting, uh, on the one hand, as you mentioned, the strategy of maximum pressure uh, on Iran, as applied by the Trump administration, uh, did have tangible benefits in curtailing uh, the threat posed by uh, Iran and Iranian-sponsored militias uh, in the region. But on the other hand, the fact that the Trump administration withdrew from the JCPOA has undermined the agreement to the degree that Iran is now reconstituting its uh, stockpile of fissile material. It is rebuilding elements of its nuclear program that were capped by the JCPOA. So th there, there, there are very complex trade-offs here. So how should the Biden administration uh, approach uh, this multifaceted issue uh, of Iran? And, and then uh, equally important, the Arab states have always complained that they were not part of the process to begin with. Supposing that the, the Arab states and the Gulf states in particular were given a seat at the table in any future negotiations process, what would be their contribution in any tangible approach uh, to address the Iran threat? I think that's an excellent question. Uh, and it is indeed a compli uh, complicated issue, and the Iranians are doubling down on, on uh, restarting their nuclear program in order to rebuild uh, uh, the leverage uh, uh, or the raw leverage they also lost uh, as a result of their militias being weaker in the region. Uh, and and uh, um, uh, uh, But to answer your question more specifically, I think uh, um, the next administration in the United States, the Biden administration, should... Um, uh, not take for granted the leverage that the United States have, has and the goodwill that it has with its uh, uh, partners in the region. It has tremendous goodwill with uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, with the United Arab Emirates, with Gulf actors, uh, with Israel, uh, and it has uh, tremendous leverage with uh, 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 adversaries of the United States and uh, uh, US partners like Turkey that it finds uh, uh, are acting uh, in a non-desirable way and on, on, on various arenas. All of that shouldn't go to waste. Uh, a, co a more comprehensive agreement, something that deals with uh, Iran's expansion in the region would be uh, beneficial. And it's also important to note that uh, sanctions, uh, 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 and this is something that's controversial, it, it irritates a lot of people when I say it sometimes, uh, can be an end in and of themselves. If there is a bad actor in the region, an actor that is using uh, uh, the windfall from sanctions relief, that is using uh, its access to US dollars, to the international financial market, to build dozens and dozens and dozens of militias uh, in the region, then limiting its ability to do so uh, is a pretty good end in and of itself, even if it is not the ideal end. Uh, uh, that said, of course, uh, uh, the door should never be closed in the face of Iran if it wants to come in and negotiate. And I don't think that Gulf actors are, uh, necessarily want this uh, uh, conflict to, to uh, last forever. I think uh, actors in the Gulf and in the Arab world in general uh, all want to see a resolution to this uh, uh, problem uh, with Iran, want to see stability in the region. But we have to always consider that there is a fundamental mismatch in the way 
that uh, these Gulf countries operate and the way that Iran operates and the way that these Gulf countries view the world and the way Iran views the world. You know, Saudi Arabia spreads its influence when there is a strong central government, when there is economic prosperity, when there is uh, a security in countries. Iran, by definition, cannot spread its influence when any of these uh, uh, conditions uh, exist in any given country. If there was a strong central government in Iraq that uh, uh, monopolized the use of force, that exercised complete control over Iraq's borders, what kind of leverage would Iran have? It would have very little, almost no leverage. What kind of leverage would a country with immense capital that can come in and build infrastructure and uh, 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 create, uh, develop a business environment like Saudi Arabia have? What kind of leverage would uh, the UAE have? So, so there are very uh, opposing uh, uh, interests in approaching state uh, uh, strength and approaching bilateral relations with countries uh, like Iraq. It's in Iraq's interest to keep, uh, Iran's interest to keep Iraq uh, corrupt, to keep it weak, to keep it sectarian, uh, uh, and to keep it, uh, 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 you know, beholden to political Islam. And that takes us uh, 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 to another point. You know, Iran's um, uh, uh, formula in the past, and the same formula that, that has been used uh, among Sunnis as well. I mean, if you look at uh, uh, the mobilization that was used uh, by groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, even the mobilization used by the Sahwa movement, uh, in cooperation with the United States uh, and Saudi Arabia in the 1970s and 80s to mobilize young people to go fight in Afghanistan, uh, uh, all uses a mixture of economic incentives and a very powerful ideology that is fundamentally, at its core, a political ideology. It's an anti-imperialist ideology. It's an anti-Western ideology. And this is something that's very, very strong. It's very powerful. And it manifests itself in different ways. But I think the DNA is the same. If you look at the Syrian Ba'ath, that's a secular party. The, 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 the Iraqi Ba'ath is a secular party. Al-Qaeda is Sunni. Kataab, Hezbollah, and the numerous uh, uh, Shia militias are all Shia, of course. But they all share this underlying worldview that there is a fundamental clash between the Arab world and the United States uh, and the West led by the United States. And that resistance is, is uh, a requirement. Uh, and that uh, uh, mistrust is the default. Uh, and, and, and this is a very valuable sentiment that is used by all of these actors, Sunni, Shia, secular, you name it. Uh, and that's why they cooperate, by the way. That's why uh, Abu Khair al-Masri is walking around in the streets of uh, Tehran. And that's why uh, uh, the Iranians are backing a secular regime that is uh, fighting an offshoot of Al-Qaeda in Syria. It's, it's, it's bizarre, but they all share uh, this exact same DNA. What's interesting is what happened in Iraq over the past protests that uh, uh, we saw uh, uh, over the past year there. We saw young people, many of whom were born after the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. So these people don't remember uh, the Abrams tanks going into Baghdad. Coming out in the streets, young Shia, uh, 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 observant Shia youth, uh, carrying photos of uh, Khomeini burning them, carrying photos of uh, Qasem Soleimani and burning them, uh, the formula stopped working. It stopped working with young people in Saudi Arabia. Nobody cares. Uh, no, if you go and talk to young people in, in, in Saudi Arabia right now and you mention uh, uh, the, the, uh, the authorities of the Sahra movement, the most famous sheikhs of the Sahra movement, that one day could uh, uh, flip public opinion in Saudi Arabia over a weekend, Today they say, uh, oh, that guy from Twitter. People do not, uh, 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 res this, this type of, of, of political uh, 
uh, Islamist gimmickry doesn't resonate with people anymore. It stopped resonating with people in Iraq. It stopped resonating with people in Syria. It stopped resonating with people in Lebanon, even among uh, Shia Arabs in Lebanon. Uh, 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 you, you, you see, uh, 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 in, in the past, it was unheard of to see a Christian or a Sunni in Lebanon ever utter uh, uh, the name Hassan Nasrallah in, in public. Now you're seeing young Arab Shias do that. If there will be a fundamental change in the region, it will be at the hands of the Arab Shia populations that have long been uh, uh, exploited by Iran to spread its uh, expansion in the region and have uh, been the victims of, of uh, poor governance in countries like uh, uh, Iraq and elsewhere. Uh, but there is a fundamental shift in the way young people uh, view the world. And I think uh, 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 time is on their side. How long this will take is a matter of, uh, 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 is a question that we should be asking ourselves, but, but time is on their side. And I think this is something that Saudi Arabia today recognizes, that the United Arab Emirates uh, recognizes. And that's why uh, they are making the moves uh, uh, that they're making today away from this archaic ideology of political Islam, away from this uh, idea that the West is fundamentally against uh, the region. And let's call a spade a spade. I mean, uh, so the Saudi-U.S. alliance is uh, one that brought immense uh, benefit to, to Saudi Arabia. If you look at uh, Saudi Arabia's, uh, 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 look at the metrics that make one state better than another. Yeah. Look at literacy, look at public health, uh, look at uh, Saudi Arabia's uh, defense industry, look at all of these things. Saudi Arabia has, has uh, emerged uh, a victor as a result of its relationship uh, uh, with the West, with the European partners, with the United States. Uh, and, and the idea right now is to, to uh, uh, eliminate uh, um, this ideology that, uh, that has plagued the region. And, so, and, uh, so, Mohammed, so, if, if I could in interrupt you, because you've opened a, a couple of uh, uh, very interesting lines of inquiry. So one is political Islam and how the, you know, the Saudi and other governments are uh, uh, dealing with it and how a Biden administration should deal with it. But before we get to that question, I did want to just wrap a ribbon around the discussion of Iran, which is where we were. And um, let, let me ask this question in a little bit of a, a, a cheeky way, but it's in order to get you to kind of refine a point that I think I heard you make. So somebody might listen to you and to other uh, uh, Arabs and say, what is the obsession that these people have with Iran, a country whose GDP is slightly smaller than that of Belgium. Why can't these guys handle Iran by themselves? Why do they keep on needing to try to drag the US into this? And I think you have an answer and you articulated an answer, but I'd just like you to, to, to sharpen that for us. What's your answer to that, to that American who says to you guys, look, Iran is the is the great bogeyman. You guys can't even handle that. that that's 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 a good question, um, I, but I think it's a deeply flawed question. Um, the problem fundamentally isn't between Saudi Arabia and Iran. It's not fundamentally between the Gulf states and Iran. The problem is fundamentally uh, between the United States and Iran. I think. If you go to Tehran and ask them what the main national security threat for the Islamic Republic is, nobody's going to tell you it's the UAE or Saudi Arabia or uh, uh, Kuwait or whichever state in the Arab world. They'll tell you it is the United States. The, 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 the raison d'etre of the, of the Revolutionary Guards is to upend what it perceives to be a US-led and Western-led regional order. 
an order in which countries like uh, Saudi Arabia, like uh, Bahrain, like the UAE, like Egypt, are all agents of uh, corrupt uh, West. So the idea that was very popular uh, around the time of the signing of the uh, Iran deal that uh, you know, we should leave, leave the region alone, this is an irrational 1,400-year-old struggle. These people have been fighting for a long time, these Sunnis and Shias. We're not going to change it today. This is, this is uh, uh, you know, rubbish, uh, frankly. Let's remember uh, uh, what happened uh, during uh, 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 the Cold War. I mean, it was, if, if you look up the Omega project, uh, 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 it's, it's a project in which uh, Saudi Arabia uh, uh, supported the Shias in uh, Lebanon against the Sunni street because the Sunni street was uh, allied with Abdel Nasser. Yeah. You know, the idea that there is a, is a, there is a, uh, an eternal Sunni-Shia struggle is, is, is false, it's a rubbish idea. Uh, and the idea that there is this uh, uh, struggle in the region between uh, 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 the leaders of the Sunni world and the leaders of the Shia world also is, is, uh, is a very false idea. You know, uh, on the ground, when you look at uh, um, uh, where the guns are, where are uh, 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 Saudi Arabia and Iran fighting? Iran is not trying to reclaim influence from uh, Saudi Arabia uh, and, and Iraq. It's trying to reclaim influence from the U.S. and Iraq. Uh, and the same can be said of no, Syria. No, but, but Mohammed, Mohammed, uh, sorry, uh, sorry to Lebanon. interrupt you. I apologize. But Mohammed, you're not calling and, and uh, le leaders in the region are not calling for the United States to impose sanctions on Iran because they have a tender concern for American national interests, right? This is because... In the Gulf region, there is the deep concern that Iran represents a threat to their national interests, and they're not able to defend those interests without the United States. And I guess for me, the question is, why is that the case, given that when you look at Iran on paper, this is not a massive economy. This should not be the kind of country that could bedevil the Arab world as much as it seems to be bedeviling it. Sure, but you can split those interests. Those interests are extremely intertwined, you know. Uh, I mentioned in the last talk we had that I did a lot of track two discussions with, with uh, Iran. And in one of the discussions, there was a very interesting point. Uh, we had uh, European interlocutors, and I was in uh, this very heated argument with uh, an Iranian uh, member of the Iranian delegation. And I said, you know, the fundamental, I said exactly what I said just now, the fundamental problem is between Iran and the United States. Uh, uh, the issue with Saudi Arabia is not because uh, 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 of Saudi Arabia per se, but because it's perceived as an agent of, of uh, uh, the West, that it's, uh, uh, you know, cooperating uh, with Western powers. Uh, and that person said precisely, you know, it's, uh, uh, if Saudi Arabia were to turn around and say, we want to sever ties with the West and we want to uh, join the axis of resistance, uh, I think Iran would welcome Saudi Arabia in open arms. So that's one mm -hmm. point of the question. The other point is the interests are, are not things that can be split. You know, maritime security in the Gulf, maritime security in the Gulf of Aden, these are interests that are uh, intertwined. Uh, 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 the stability of oil markets uh, is an interest uh, uh, that uh, both the United States and Saudi Arabia share. You know, Saudi Arabia's ability to act as a central bank of oil to increase production by several million uh, uh, barrels or decrease it by several million barrels at will uh, because of its spare capacity, because of its low operational break-even costs, because of its fiscal health, uh, the fact that it has uh, the lowest debt to GDP ratio in the G20, all of uh, uh, these things uh, mean that uh, uh, protecting uh, 
uh, U.S. interests uh, and protecting uh, the interests of its partners in the Gulf often mean the same thing. Right. And I think, you know, just as a, you know, I, I think part of what you would say is that part of the reason that Iran is such a um, troublesome actors because Saudi Arabia is playing by certain rules, globally accepted rules, and Iran doesn't play by those rules. Is that, that would be your claim? Yeah, no, I think that would be a fair uh, 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 characterization. I think that would okay. be a fair characterization. So, Mohammed, if I could take you back to the issue of political Islam, uh, because you are one of the few speakers to actually bring up uh, this issue. And, and I think it's, it's very important uh, that we pause and get your take on uh, the degree to which uh, political Islamist groups uh, present a, a, a source of appeal or otherwise uh, to peoples of the region. I mean, you, you mentioned that uh, the, the, these, the, these groups affiliated with political Islam uh, are declining in terms of their overall appeal uh, in the region. But it, it's, it's still clear that, that they still represent a source of deep anxiety for governments uh, in the region. I mean, we saw just recently uh, the Saudi religious establishment reaffirm the designation of the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization. Uh, we see that the issue of the Muslim Brotherhood is still a constant feature in Egyptian uh, political discourse, uh, for example. And Egypt, of course, has also designated uh, the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization. But more importantly, a lot of the anxiety stems from what was perceived to be uh, this opening on the part of the Obama administration to the forces of political Islam, to the extent that even the, the some attribute uh, responsibility to the administration for the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood in, in Egypt, uh, in Libya, in Tunisia, uh, a, as a very influential actor in the Syrian opposition against uh, the Assad regime. So to, to what extent does this issue of political Islam or, or your expectations in terms of how this issue will figure in the relationship between Arab countries uh, and uh, the Biden administration. And because it's interesting that the, given the focus on this issue in the region, it doesn't seem to figure very prominently in the thinking uh, in uh, opinion circles and uh, foreign policy circles in Washington in terms of their approach to the region. In other words, the Middle East or the Arab world may, may still be on uh, fixated on this issue of the Brotherhood. But it seems that the United States and, and, and Washington has turned the page on this issue of political Islam as a factor in regional politics. That's a good question. Uh, first of all, I don't think that they, they um, uh, are ignoring it. I think it's an issue that, uh, if anything, has become uh, uh, the object of debate more uh, in recent times than it was 2011. I mean, uh, especially among among um, conservative and right-wing groups, there was a, a right-wing resurgence in Europe and, and elsewhere. So that has sort of brought back uh, that debate in, in different terms, uh, if you like. But I think we should we should ask ourselves why governments in the region are fixated on that. You know, uh, a lot of people like to 
point uh, to say that it's hypocrisy by the Saudis that they are opposing the Muslim Brotherhood now when they supported them in the past. And that has to be explained in order to understand precisely why uh, uh, there is this enmity towards uh, the Muslim Brotherhood. Let's go back to, to the support of uh, 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 the government and the United States, government of Saudi Arabia and the United States for uh, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. You know, young uh, Saudi, Kuwaiti, uh, uh, Emirati, uh, and, and Arab in general, young, young men went to Afghanistan in order to fight the, the, the uh, uh, atheist uh, uh, criminal Soviets uh, who were, who were uh, 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 invading Afghanistan. As soon as they came back from that uh, 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 battleground, they came back with a sense of uh, uh, entitlement to uh, uh, politically participate in Saudi Arabia. They came back uh, 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 having uh, uh, been politically charged in that place and having uh, 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 joined a, a transnational network of like-minded young people who were controlled by a clandestine group called the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, and this is something that's uh, well documented uh, 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 and reached its heyday in, in uh, that time. The problem for a government like Saudi Arabia is that as soon as they left Afghanistan and came back to the kingdom, they had a whole new project. And the project was remove the infidels from the Arabian Peninsula. If you're sitting in uh, a Saudi government office, you're realizing that one of your top uh, and most important relationships is with uh, the United States. And you have a bunch of young people in your own country being controlled by a leadership that uh, uh, is uh, 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 reports to and is answerable to uh, uh, a transnational group that is trying to, to, to uh, 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 target your most important strategic relationship. That's when uh, the relationship started getting very difficult with uh, uh, the Sahwa movement or, or uh, the chapter of the Afghan Muslimin in, in, uh, in Saudi Arabia. They were too strong to be eliminated head on. They had to be co-opted and they had to be managed to a certain degree. But when they did get weak, uh, the government would push back. So there was always this, uh, uh, this push and pull. But the currency uh, 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 that uh, was important for them, the reason that they could operate was their ability to, to uh, uh, um, uh, uh, influence young people in the street, uh, their ability uh, uh, to um, uh, 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 create grassroots mobilization. Today, they've been stripped of that ability. That doesn't mean that the ideology that they represent is antithetical to uh, 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 what uh, 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 Gulf governments and, and various other Arab governments consider to be their top strategic priorities. Uh, uh, that still is the case. They still do pose a threat, but you know everything they stand for is something that goes against the strategic, the domestic, uh, the interests in general of, of uh, uh, Gulf monarchies. And I think demographics are on the side of, of pro-Western uh, anti-Islamist forces in the region. Is that, is that right, though, Mohammed? If I look at, for example, Saudi Arabia's uh, uh, intervention in Yemen and the alignment that exists between the Muslim Brotherhood-affiliated Islah and the Saudi national interest in Yemen. It, it's not clear to me right, that the claim you're making that the Islamists are, uh, are ad 
on every dimension uh, opposed to the national interest of these uh, Gulf countries is is right. In fact, I mean, you pointed out, of course, to the politics making strange bello- bedfellows in the case of Al-Qaeda and Iran and, and the Muslim Brotherhood, etc. But we also know that these Sunni Islamist movements are at their core very anti-Shia. And so, and they have been in the past a strategic tool for countries like uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, etc. So maybe you could speak a little bit to what the, you know, I'm, I, I lose track of what the relation between Islah and Saudi Arabia is on a minute by minute basis. But my, my, my read of the situation, it is, it is not the open warfare that one would infer from your comments about Muslim Brotherhood movements. No, of course not. And Islah and Yemen is also an exceptional case. And Muslim Brotherhood groups in different parts of the Arab world are different. You know, Al-Qaeda itself is an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood. Al-Qaeda is, is a bloody criminal group that killed thousands and thousands of innocent people. Uh, and Nahva in uh, Tunisia is not a terrorist group that killed uh, thousands and thousands of people, although its ideology is one uh, that uh, Gulf actors find extremely problematic, uh, one that derives the same, uh, derives its, its, its uh, 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 you know, worldview from the same texts that uh, uh, traditional Muslim Brotherhood groups derive their uh, worldview from. So insofar as that, it's considered a problematic movement. But in Yemen, Yemen is a very different place. I mean, Yemen is very tribal, even when it uh, uh, start gets, uh, starts getting uh, uh, split up along, along uh, ideological levels. You know, at the end of the day, Ali Mahsan Lahmar is, is uh, 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 you know, uh, a tribal leader uh, who has tribal sensibilities. Uh, you know, even uh, uh, among other groups in Yemen, uh, uh, the tribal mentality uh, uh, um, and, and politics of power are something that uh, 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 are very important there. Are there ardent supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood that are uh, uh, members in good standing of the regional organization in Yemen? Definitely. Uh, are all the members of the Islah party uh, and the political actors that are part of that party, uh, 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 these members? Certainly not. So, Mohammed, while we're on Yemen, of course, this is a major issue for Saudi Arabia. And this is one of the key uh, pillars uh, of uh, President-elect Biden's foreign policy platform that he has been very clear on. Um, He has said that uh, he will reconsider arms sales to Saudi Arabia in relation to its intervention in Yemen. And of course, the, the, the Saudi military intervention in Yemen is perceived to have implicated the United States uh, in that war in a very problematic way. The United States is now seen to be implicated in the humanitarian situation uh, in Yemen, which is very dire. And from a strategic perspective, there does not seem to be a clear pathway to end this conflict in Yemen, uh, to, to end the war. Uh, in the Yemeni uh, civil war. How, how does that um, affect Saudi Arabia's relationship with the incoming administration, given the centrality of this issue to Saudi Arabia's national security? I think Saudi Arabia would be open uh, uh, for uh, any help that it could get and any uh, cooperation that it could get in order to end the war in Yemen. Uh, either by a political process or uh, 
uh, via winding down uh, the military operations in Yemen. But it's important to consider also that there is a feeling that the brunt of, of, uh, uh, with, uh, of, of preventing Iran from establishing a foothold in Babel Mandeb is being shouldered uh, exclusively by Saudi Arabia. And that's something that shouldn't be the case. At the end of the day, you know, it's in the US in, US's interest, it's in Egypt's interest, it's in uh, Western Europe's interest, uh, and the entire world's interest to make sure that uh, an important pathway like Babel Mandeb is not controlled uh, by the Revolutionary Guards. Uh, uh, you know, imagine a case where uh, 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 Hormuz and the Revolutionary Guards are only one switch away from, uh, 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 Hormuz and Babel Mandeb are, is only one switch away from being uh, blocked by the Revolutionary Guards. That would render the Suez Canal more or less uh, uh, irrelevant. Uh, that will uh, 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 cause uh, energy prices to skyrocket. That will, uh, 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 you know, uh, this is, take Babel Mandeb for example. Uh, Somali pirates in Babel Mandeb are, uh, have created a security situation that uh, 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 has the French Navy, the German Navy, the British Navy sending uh, 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 groups of ships, armadas of ships, uh, on uh, uh, pre-determined uh, 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 trips so that uh, uh, commercial vessels can follow them for protection. Imagine if, if that government was closed by uh, the Revolutionary Guards. That's something that uh, would be problematic uh, for the world's economy. So, so the Saudis, I think, uh, uh, do want to, to see an end to this war, but there are certain things that they will not accept uh, 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 and uh, they will not negotiate, which is, uh, you know, the freedom of Babel Mandib, and they will not negotiate on things like uh, 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 having a, a group uh, similar to Hezbollah on their uh, southern flank, uh, lobbing uh, rockets uh, uh, in Saudi Arabia and continuing on this war of attrition uh, at a low heat uh, over over many decades, but short of that, they want to end the war. Um, uh, Mohammed, um, uh, I, I want to move now to talking about Saudi Arabia, and then we do want to open it up for uh, our audience. And so, you know, a, a, a few minutes ago, I put some words in your mouth and said, you know, you would say Saudi Arabia plays by the rules when Iran doesn't, and that's why Iran is is such a problem. One, one uh, person who doesn't think Ira uh, Saudi Arabia plays by the rules is the president-elect. And Karim already alluded to the fact that president-elect Biden said that they're not going to sell more weapons to the Saudis. The president-elect uh, spoke about the uh, killing of uh, Jamal Khashoggi and said, quote, we're going to make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah they are. He said there's very little social redeeming value in the present government of Saudi Arabia. So I'd like to ask you, do you think we're about to witness a major restructuring of the U.S.-Saudi relationship? And if so, how should the Saudis respond? Judging by uh, uh, the history of U.S.-Saudi relations, I don't think that we should be expecting any major restructuring. I mean, uh, during election time, there's a lot of heated rhetoric that is uh, 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 thrown around uh, on, on uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, on Iran, on many uh, foreign policy files that is not necessarily uh, uh, implemented uh, after uh, whichever president reaches office. 
the same can be said about Hillary uh, Clinton when she was running for office, or President Obama, or President Trump. We discussed earlier in this talk uh, uh, what he was talking about. I don't think that uh, uh, President Biden is going to have uh, um, a reckless foreign policy that does away with traditional U.S. allies, that upends traditional U.S. interests in the region, that severs important counterterrorism uh, relationships, that uh, shreds uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, 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 U.S. interests in terms of geopolitics in the Gulf overnight. The idea that all of this would be uh, uh, lost uh, overnight, I think, is is a short-sighted one, and it's something that we see. Um, in the discourse in the United States today. And I think we see it because of the spectacle of the Trump administration. Everything uh, that the Trump administration did, people are starting to consider as, as uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, new, something that is uh, against the norm, when in fact, if you look closely, not all of it is. Do you think that the Saudis will try to offer uh, make a peace offering to the United States or some dramatic gesture to get in the good graces of this administration? I don't uh, um, I think they need to make a peace offering. There's no war with this current administration. Uh, President Biden is, is, is and, 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 and it's important to, to note for context, you know, uh, uh, despite all of the tactical disagreements, and there were serious tactical disagreements with the Obama administration, President Obama visited Saudi Arabia more so than any other president uh, in history. Uh, actually, President Obama cut short his trip uh, uh, to India to attend King Abdullah's funeral and to uh, uh, congratulate King Salman on becoming king. Uh, that trip was supposed to be uh, attended by uh, President Biden, but it was attended instead by President Obama and uh, uh, Stephen Hadley uh, uh, and several other U.S. Uh, officials that represented former administrations uh, attended that uh, uh, funeral. That tells you all you need to know about, uh, 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 you know, the, the, the institutional uh, uh, quality of the relationship with Saudi Arabia. So, so there's a lot to it. Uh, what we see in the media is the war on Yemen. We see uh, a select number of issues of uh, uh, contention, issues where... Uh, uh, there are disagreements, but those issues are the tip of a very huge iceberg that includes uh, uh, counterterrorism cooperation uh, that is extremely uh, uh, close, cooperation on defense matters, cooperation on geopolitical files. I mean, the history of the U.S. Uh, cooperation, whether it uh, did good or bad, is something that I'm sure uh, many people have uh, various opinions on. It's a very vast history and a very deep history. So, so, uh, so this is uh, just, know, in your view, overheated campaign rhetoric of uh, from the no, no, president-elect. It and is. we shouldn't it expect, is. for example, and you wouldn't advise the Saudi government to engage in any grand gestures to build uh, the administration's trust, like, for example, normalizing with Israel or, or, or some other such gesture. I don't think the Saudis have to... to uh, 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 as you put it, I mean, they don't have to make peace if there's no war. So maybe if, if we could uh, j just ask a final question on this issue of normalization with Israel be before we open it up to uh, our participants. So uh, Saudi Arabia has so far uh, opted not to join 
the bandwagon of Gulf normalization uh, to Israel. It has not followed the UAE or, or Bahrain uh, in, in making such a decision. C can you give us your sense of the uh, Saudi outlook on the Abraham Accords and the whole issue of normalization uh, with Israel? Because uh, on the one hand, it, it seems to have uh, broken not only the Arab consensus uh, on the issue of normalization with Israel, but also the GCC consensus uh, on this very central issue. Um, and, and secondly, um, the, 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 this whole issue of normalization with Israel goes against the very core of the Arab Peace Initiative, which tied uh, normalization with Israel in exchange for full peace and full withdrawal of Israel from the Arab occupied territories. And of course, the, those of us who are familiar with the history of the Arab Peace Initiative know that it originated uh, primarily from uh, an initiative by uh, the late King Abdullah, who first proposed this issue of normalization in exchange for, for full peace. So you mentioned uh, in response to Tariq that Saudi Arabia would not consider normalization in relation to uh, its ties with the Biden administration. How would the, the, the kingdom uh, look to uh, this issue of normalization? What, what would be its considerations uh, when it comes to the issue of normalization with Israel? I mean, I can only go by what uh, Saudi officials have been uh, 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 you know, uh, saying uh, time and again, and uh, the foreign minister in Saudi Arabia has uh, uh, repeatedly uh, 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 stated that uh, uh, Saudi Arabia's policy uh, towards Israel is unchanged. It's a steadfast uh, support of the Palestinian cause, and it will not take any decisions uh, uh, in that regard without uh, uh, consulting the Palestinians and without following uh, the Palestinians' lead. But that said, you know, it was very clear that the decisions taken by Bahrain and by the United Arab Emirates are sovereign decisions that are, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, they're right. Uh, 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 I don't think it's, I mean, publicly, but I mean, that's, that's, that's the implication. Um, and I think it's important to consider that, and first of all, the, the Arab Peace Initiative uh, uh, um, offers a consensus uh, based uh, recognition of Israel. It's still on the table and it's still something that can be uh, uh, pursued. But, but the discourse, the change in discourse is something that's important uh, uh, in the region. And I think it's an, a very important change of, uh, uh, and what specifically is important is the idea that, so, so what I think the normalization uh, and Abraham Accords are achieving today in the region is that they're splitting the idea of subscription to the resistance industry in the region with support for the Palestinian cause. And what I mean by that is if you're a young Arab, you can be um, supportive of the Palestinian uh, cause. You can condemn Israeli aggression on Palestinians. Uh, you can have very firm positions on these issues, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to subscribe to a region-wide uh, resistance industry uh, and uh, support uh, actors like Hamas and support actors uh, like Syria and support actors like Hezbollah, Iran, etc., etc., etc. Delinking those two things is, I think, uh, uh, highly beneficial uh, for the region. And this is something that uh, we're seeing throughout the Gulf. You know, if uh, 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 nobody's being asked uh, 
uh, to change their sympathies. Nobody's asked, being asked to withdraw their support for uh, a just cause. Uh, uh, the idea here is to, to uh, uh, emphasize the idea, uh, is to emphasize the importance of the modern nation state in the region. And that's something that has been always uh, suffering. I mean, in the past, the region has been taken by storm by political Islam. Pan-Arabism has taken the region by storm. The political discourse in the region uh, never uh, was never um, um, uh, 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 built around the idea of national interests. You never talked about national interests. You talked about the Islamic nation, or what's good for the Islamic nation, what's good for the Arab uh, nation. Today, people are starting to talk about what's good for Iraq, what's good for uh, Saudi Arabia, what's good for the UAE. And I think that is a long overdue uh, uh, change in the region that uh, we'll only see expand and develop even more. That's great. Okay, we definitely do want to open it up for for questions. Be- before we do, let me just ask one last uh, one last question. You know what we've heard from from you and from others throughout this series is that you know many very smart people what they're looking to the United States to do is to maintain its involvement in the region, to continue to help solve the region's problems. At a time when, you know, the appetite for that in the United States is at the lowest I I think it's ever been. And so I guess uh, we wanted you to tell us what you think the best case that Arab leaders could make to American audiences? What's the best case that you, Muhammad al-Yahya, could make to American audiences for continued engagement in the region? And bonus points if the answer doesn't mention Iran. Sure. Uh, I think, you know, it's important to see that the, the region has already fundamentally changed, that there is a, a common link between the worldviews of young people Uh, across the region, whether they are uh, Arab, Iranian, Shia, uh, Sunni, uh, and that this is something that will only improve uh, over time. Uh, And, uh, you know, these bygone and and, uh, uh, expired ideas that uh, uh, groups like Hezbollah or groups like Hamas are just a fixture in the region's politics, they might be uh, 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 bad groups, but we have to deal with them because they are part of uh, the region's uh, uh, part of the region and their organic roots in the region is a problematic one. No, you know, they are being rejected from inside the region. Young people are rejecting uh, uh, the ideologies that they're putting forth to cement their own powers. And, uh, 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 you know, uh, um, all, of, all of these uh, dynamics are being uh, redefined and uh, 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 changing on a day-to-day basis. That's great. Okay, Mohammed, thank you for that. We're now going to open it up uh, for questions. Um, I just want to remind everybody how we do this. Uh, we ask you to raise your hand in the using the Zoom raise hand function, which you can find if you click on the participants icon at the bottom of your screen. A panel will open up on the right hand side of your screen and you'll have the option to raise your hand. If you ask a question, you will be consenting to having your voice and face, if your camera is on, recorded. And these recordings will be available on our website. So you'll be immortalized in that way. So uh, the first question I have is from Dr. Gary Seymour, former colleague here at the Kennedy School, a great uh, mentor and role model to many of us, and the director of the Crown Center for Middle East Studies at Brandeis University. Dr. Seymour, go ahead. Thank you, Tarek. 
Hi, Mohammed. Good to see you again. Hi, Dr. Simon. Good to see you. Again. Well, yeah, please How call me Gary. And thank you very much for your, you know, very clear presentation. I, I have thank a follow-up question about U.S.-Saudi relations. Um, you know, I agree with you that campaign rhetoric is not a good guide to policy. And I agree that there's an underlying strategic rationale for the U.S. and Saudi Arabia to remain partners. But I do think the situation has changed a little bit because so much of the critique of Saudi Arabia is personalized. It's directed against the crown prince because he's associated with the Saudi intervention in Yemen. He's associated with the murder of Khashoggi. And I, I think it, it creates a political impediment for Biden to just forget about all the campaign rhetoric and invite MBS to the White House or even get on an airplane and go to Riyadh. So I think we're operating in a situation where the personal relationship between leaders is gonna be very constrained. And that's important for countries like the US and Saudi Arabia where the leaders have such a dominant role in foreign policy. So I've been thinking about what joint project can the US, can Riyadh and Washington collaborate on to amend or improve relations? And ending the war in Yemen is the obvious one, but I think that's hopeless because as far as I can tell, the Houthis don't want to end the war, they're winning. So why would they want to have a peace settlement unless Saudi Arabia is prepared to capitulate? The Abraham Accords would be great, but maybe that's a step too far. What about gutter? I mean, resolve it. It's not a huge issue in the U.S., but if you resolve the dispute with gutter, that would be a positive step. People in the U.S. would see that as encouraging. Maybe there's some common effort on Iraq, which would be in both Washington and Riyadh's interest as a way to counter Iranian influence. But I, there have to be smart people in Riyadh thinking about what can we do to rehabilitate our image in Washington and make it easier for the Biden administration to work with us. So I just want to ask you to think, to talk a little bit more about what you think options are for, for Saudi Arabia. I think that's a great um, uh, question. And I think there are plenty of smart people in Riyadh that have already been working on uh, the issue of Iraq, for example. The border with Iraq has been open for the first time in 11 years. and. Uh, 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 there is a movement between Iraq and Saudi Arabia. There are investments that are due to be made in Iraq uh, in terms of infrastructure. Saudi companies are already uh, uh, being established there. And there is complete alignment between U.S. interests uh, in Iraq, uh, Iraqi people's interests uh, in Iraq, and Saudi Arabia's interests in Iraq. As we mentioned earlier in the talk, you know, Saudi Arabia doesn't have the tools to, to extend its influence in the chaos that Iraq is in right now. It doesn't. Uh, those tools are all uh, Iranian tools. And that's important. But, you know, on the issue of image, you know, every country's image is very important. And every country should be uh, 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 wary of what its image is and, and, and uh, uh, try to, to improve uh, uh, its image. Uh, but image is not everything at the end of the day. You know, uh, absent uh, 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 real work on the ground, to improve uh, people's well-being in one country, image can only go so far. And the reality of the matter is, the Saudi Arabia of today looks nothing like the, reality, the Saudi Arabia of five years ago. 
if you were to look at Saudi Arabia today and look at how society is today and look at the changes that have happened just in the last two to three years, you would say that there's a 30-year difference between 2015 uh, and today. And that's what people in Saudi Arabia uh, have on their minds uh, all day. Should they pay attention a little bit more to their image? Probably. Uh, but what they're doing, uh, what, what they're prioritizing over all of these considerations is something that's nothing short of, of uh, uh, life-changing. You know, a young woman in Saudi Arabia right now uh, can decide on her own to go live by herself. She can, and all of these things that I'm about to mention, she wasn't able to do just a few years ago. She can decide uh, to go to university. She can choose what major she wants uh, in university without going back to her guardian. She can get a driver's license and drive to university. She can get a job. Uh, 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 while studying uh, the major of her choosing uh, uh, and, and paying uh, her way through a through, uh, uh, university. Uh, all of these things happen not gradually, incrementally, so that society can accept them over 10, 20, 30 years. They happen very quickly uh, over, over just a few years. So, so if, uh, and, and you visited Saudi uh, several times, you know, I encourage you and I encourage everybody who who's interested in Saudi Arabia to go to Saudi Arabia and walk around in the street and see uh, the, the changes that have happened. People are really preoccupied with what's happening in the country in that uh, 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 sphere. Um, and yeah, of course, I think uh, uh, image should be uh, uh, focused on, but it's not, it's not uh, uh, the be all and end all. At the end of the day, investing in keeping this transformation going and reversing the influence of groups like the Sahra movement and the Muslim Brotherhood in Saudi Arabia, opening up society to the world, allowing whoever wants to go visit Saudi Arabia to visit by completing a five-minute online visa is testament to the fact that the Saudis want to show exactly what uh, kind of transformation they have. I mean, uh, uh, the coronavirus uh, uh, impeded that now to a large degree, uh, but that's something that uh, will be possible going forward. And, and, and let's remember that were it not for the coronavirus, you'd have the leaders of the top 20 economies in the world in Riyadh as we speak right now. So, so the idea that Saudi Arabia is somehow isolated, I think, is, is, uh, is far from the truth. So, you know, just to be clear, I wasn't talking about the image of Saudi Arabia. I, I, I think the issue is the image of the crown prince personally. And I just think that's a difficult hurdle to overcome in Washington. Um, and that, I'm, all I'm saying is that, impodes, that imposes political impediments on Biden that, that haven't existed in the past to have, to have a personal relationship with, with Mohammed bin Salman. I mean, I think uh, cooperation will still uh, remain. I think uh, uh, the personal relationship will uh, uh, um, uh, persist and it will uh, thrive in the same way that it thrived under uh, uh, the Trump administration. Uh, will there be disagreements? Will there be issues? Of course, there will be uh, issues and disagreements. But uh, when you look at the fundamentals of the relationship, I don't think uh, 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 they'll change. The, the, they're, they're quite solid. Thank you, Mohammed. Th thank you, Mohammed. I get, you know, one, one question could be, you know, is there ever a point at which somebody like uh, the Crown Prince becomes so much of a liability in the eyes of, uh, of the you know, sort of broader Saudi leadership that, you know, that, that they uh, feel a change is necessary. But it sounds like you're saying that's very far from where the Saudis are right now. Um, no, I think, I mean, the, the Crown Prince is our leadership. It's, uh, it's uh, so, and, and I think that is far. And also it's important to consider 
that Saudi Arabia has always been uh, under extreme scrutiny uh, by the media. Let's look at 2014, 2013, every single headline in the newspapers that you would read in London or in Washington or New York uh, would say that Saudi Arabia is funding ISIS, Saudi Arabia is funding Al-Qaeda, Saudi Arabia is a bad partner, we should uh, uh, sever ties with Saudi Arabia, uh, the United States is uh, self-sufficient uh, and it's oil production. So the idea that uh, attacks on Saudi Arabia are new or that uh, the strain on uh, 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 in the media and the strain on, on the U.S.-Saudi relations uh, is something that is limited to the past uh, five or six years, I think is, is a problematic idea. It's been there since the 70s and the 80s and throughout the 90s. Uh, and even today, and, uh, and the relationships uh, that are uh, important to Saudi Arabia strategically have persisted because of their value as strategic yeah. relationships. No, I think Gary, Gary's question was more... That, 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 that Saudi Arabia could have done much more to tell right. uh, a different story or to improve its right. image in the past. Uh, yeah, but what's new is, as, as Gary said, I think is the personalization, but, but I take your answer to that question. The next uh, question we have is from Nadim Shahedi, our dear friend, Dr. Nadim, from the Lebanese American University. Go ahead, sir. This should work. I've... You just need to unmute yourself, Nadim. Yep. Ah, ah that's it. Thank Hi, you. <laughs> Thank you. Nice to see you all. Hi, Tarek. Hi, good to see you. Yeah. Uh, Gary, uh, actually, my question has, has been asked uh, twice, so, but, but I'll, I'll, I'll formulate it in a slightly different way. Uh, I mean, I've just, I was in Washington last week where 92.8% of the vote went to Biden. So you're talking about an alliance, a perceived alliance with, with um, Donald Trump which has the whole of the establishment against it, including most of the me mainstream media, most of academia, and, and most of the bureaucracy. I mean, uh, the, the infighting within the bureaucracy, the resistance, if you, if, if you like. Uh, so, the, so, I, and so, I mean, I was joking saying that the real Arab-Persian divide or Sunni-Shia divide is not in the Middle East. It's in it's in Washington D.C. really because it's unbridgeable in Washington D.C. In the Middle East, we talk to each other at least on. So so I, I just wanted to emphasize that the backlash uh, uh, against Saudi I expect it to be to be much bigger than you than you present presented. And Biden himself was attacking Saudi before, he, uh, uh, and and his 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 manifesto to the Arab uh, to the Arab and Muslim in the U.S. is also very specifically anti-Saudi. I mean, but the Democrats in general, <laughs> you will find huge hostility. Uh, it's it's like a beauty contest between between Iran and Saudi, and Saudi loses. Uh, they, they don't see anything wrong with Iran. They see everything wrong with Saudi. It's, so uh, I, I'm just emphasizing two points that were done, and it's not personalized yeah. against uh, uh, 
Mohammed bin Salman because because it spreads to to the region. Even in Lebanon, they are. I mean, there was a report by the ICG yesterday, uh, almost taking a Hezbollah position <laughs> as a, in a, in a, in a so so it's much more serious than than we. You, you, if I if I could if I could just riff on what Nadim said, I mean, uh, you know, if I were an uncharitable person, I would say the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia has so mismanaged Saudi Arabia's image that it's losing in a beauty contest to the state spo- the state sponsor of terrorism par excellence, Iran, at least in Washington, D.C. And is there no recognition of that fact in the you know, the circles that you move in, in the, in the region, because it really doesn't sound like it to, to listen to you. I don't think it is uh, losing in that uh, beauty competition at all. Uh, actually. I think if you look at uh, Saudi Arabia's image in 2013, 14, 15, uh, you know, it's very easy for us to forget that Saudi Arabia was being blamed for every single terrorist group in the region that Saudi Arabia was being blamed for Al-Qaeda, for Jabhat al-Nusra, for uh, ISIS, that attacks in Europe were being blamed on Saudi Arabia and by uh, uh, Saudi Arabia allegedly uh, uh, funding uh, uh, groups in Europe and, and, and uh, 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 supporting uh, terrorism and doing all sorts of things. Today, uh, uh, there is a realization that Saudi Arabia uh, 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 has nothing to do with uh, 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 these groups in Europe. That, uh, that Saudi Arabia is not uh, uh, in any way, shape, or form funding Al-Qaeda or funding ISIS, that Saudi Arabia, on the contrary, is, is uh, uh, fighting these groups. And on the other hand, you have the leadership of Al-Qaeda sitting in Iran. Is there a backlash uh, against Saudi Arabia as a result of several uh, uh, problems? Uh, the Khashoggi issue, of course, being chief among them. Of course, there is a, a backlash uh, uh, as a result of that. And that's a natural backlash. I mean, it was a horrible, grisly murder that happened to Jamal Khashoggi. To expect uh, there not to be a backlash against it is something uh, uh, that is extremely unreasonable, I think. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia is much more complicated. It, uh, there is much more to Saudi Arabia, and I think that's something that people realize. Do I think that uh, uh, the general tide is a very anti-Saudi one? Sure. Will it always uh, last uh, in the way that it is right now? I don't think so. And I, I, I always remember what an Emirati friend in Washington once told me. He said, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia right now is like a pinata in Washington, uh, D.C. Everybody's wearing a blindfold and carrying a stick and trying to smack Saudi Arabia, wherever it is. But nobody really wants to go after uh, Saudi Arabia. This is partisan politics and people want to go after President Trump. I'm not saying that, that people don't have their issues with Saudi Arabia. They sure do. But let's not discount the extent to which Saudi Arabia has become a pinata for partisan politics. And normally that does subside after elections. Uh, and it will subside when uh, there is no axe to grind uh, uh, in terms of partisan politics. That's my prediction, at least for the next four years. So just, Mohammed, to, uh, to bring to closure this issue, because this is very important, it seems, as you mentioned, that the issue of Saudi Arabia's relationship with Washington has not just become personalized, as, as Gary mentioned, but it's become a partisan political issue, that, that there is no longer 
uh, the bipartisan support for the U.S.-Saudi alliance. Uh, th there is the very uh, pervasive perception that Saudi Arabia was aligned with uh, the Republican Party and President Trump in particular. Um, does that erode the basis uh, in a strategic sense uh, of the U.S.-Saudi relationship? No, I, I, I think it doesn't erode uh, uh, that basis. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, the unprecedented polarization that the United States uh, uh, is experiencing right now manifests itself on foreign policy issues as well. Even coronavirus is something that's extremely polarizing right now. Today, you either stand behind the Saudis and, and uh, 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 support President Trump with them, or the Saudis are the worst possible actors ever in the history of the Middle East. Today, if you look at masks, uh, when it comes to coronavirus, you either have people that, are, uh, that would never touch masks with a 10-foot road and think that coronavirus is a hoax, or people that want to wear their masks while they're sleeping alone in their bedrooms. That's a, that's a huge exaggeration. But on every single uh, uh, issue you have in the United States, you have an extremely polarized, very angry group of people that are shouting over each other. Saudi Arabia is no different. And I think, yani hopefully, all of these issues start getting a little bit calmer in the United States. Discourse starts getting calmer. People start getting less angry. And I think when that happens, things will be seen uh, as they are uh, for their uh, 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 advantages, for their disadvantages, for their uh, weaknesses, for their strengths. Uh, I think we're going to see a period of, of more calmness that, uh, that everybody needs. Uh Mohammed, we have time for one more question. And so we have a question from Anat Berko. I'm asking her to unmute herself. Is this the Anat Berko who is a former member of Knesset, counterterrorism researcher? Yes, sir. Great. Please ask your question of Mohammed Yahya. Yes. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to participate in this panel. And thank you so much, Mohammed. It was very interesting. I would like to ask you uh, something about uh, the uh, Abram Accord in the region, which has uh, changed the whole uh, perception, I think, uh, and the attitude about Israel and about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I would like to ask, how do you see Israel as a game changer in the meaning of security and stabilization of the region? The Middle East, and uh, actually not just security, and I'm speaking about uh, security, also exchange of knowledge, uh, academia, agriculture, and security as uh, like pure security, because I'm coming from this field uh, of counterterrorism that uh, is also very, very important. And it's not just uh, now to see it in a polarized uh, attitude of uh, Sunnah, Shia, Jewish, uh, or uh, the Jewish state, or Christians, or just the pure interest that everybody, every state have in the region. Thank you. That's a good question. Thank you very much. Um, I think you made a, a good distinction in the beginning when you said Israel versus the Israeli-Palestinian issue. I think the way Israel is perceived in the region has changed, but uh, the way the Israeli-Palestinian issue uh, has changed much less or hasn't changed very much. Um, 
I think it's no secret that people see that uh, they are threatened on a daily basis in various Arab countries by Iran and by Iran's proxies. Um, Israel is not a threat to their livelihoods day to day. Israel is not a threat to uh, 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 their well-being. Israel is not a long-term threat to, to the stability of their countries. Uh, does this change their sympathy for Palestine or Palestinian cause? No, it doesn't. But does it uh, uh, shift the priorities uh, of, of uh, the threat priorities? I think uh, that's something that uh, uh, definitely uh, has changed in the region. And uh, uh, in terms of, of, of avenues of cooperation, I think there are many avenues of cooperation uh, 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 with, uh, with every state in the region. Uh, uh, but, uh, uh, and, and we've seen that the Bahrainis and the Emiratis have opted to, to uh, uh, build relations with Israel. Uh, that could expand. Other, we could see other countries doing it, but there will always be this elephant in the room, which is the Palestinian issue. Uh, and the idea is that uh, uh, we've spent, uh, we've seen uh, decades of uh, dealing with the Palestinian-Israeli crisis in the same way, yield very little results. Uh, perhaps we'll see that uh, 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 extending uh, uh, or, or, or more communication and, and uh, opening up might uh, create uh, an environment uh, that is more conducive to finding a lasting solution for the Palestinians. But I still think that this is something that cannot uh, uh, be ignored. That's something that, that cannot uh, go on the back burner, regardless of, of how uh, willing uh, the Israelis uh, are and regardless of how uh, serious the Palestinians are. Or the Palestinian leadership, rather. I don't think that Israel uh, is ignored on the Palestinian uh, issue. We are not ignoring that. But we need to look that if they are looking for a solution, it couldn't be a solution that actually delegitimized our like, right to exist as a, as a Jewish democratic state for the whole uh, citizens in Israel. So uh, perhaps with the help of the Arab countries around us, with this uh, very positive uh, uh, peace agreement, agreements, and I assume that will be other states that will join this uh, uh, agreement, uh, it will be more influential to come with a reasonable offer also that the Palestinians accepted because the Palestinians denied every offer that they got. And I'm not speaking uh, just from the right wing, from the left wing. Actually, they didn't want any solution. They want a solution that they legitimized Israel. You know, we don't have a problem. Israel, you have 20% Arab uh, citizens. A lot of Jews from our countries, like myself, I'm from Iraqi. Jewish origin. My both of my parents were born in Baghdad. All my extended family are from Baghdad. So it's like for us, it's obvious that yeah. it must be much more reasonable. And I think that with this attitude, that we we open the, the floor to everybody to talk about it, it will be much easier. Thank you, Dr. Berko. Obviously, we could probably spend another ninety minutes talking just about the. Palestinian-Israeli uh, issue, but uh, but Mohammed, if I could just wrap a ribbon around this little inquiry, and then we'll we'll end. 
I mean, what are we to infer from the fact that Saudi Arabia hasn't normalized? I mean, you've actually made a very powerful case for normalization in your remarks, and yet we're seeing that the country hasn't. So are we to infer from that that in Saudi Arabia there is actually a debate uh, about this and that there are some pretty powerful arguments uh, happening in Saudi Arabia against following the Emirati lead? I mean, I, I don't think I made a powerful case for normalization. I made uh, uh, very strong statements about uh, 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 how I the mean, idea you talked of about the resistance uh, industry. Uh, yeah, how, 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 the, how, how the dividends uh, tended uh, to be beneficial to a lot of uh, yeah. people. Uh, um, look, I, uh, you know, I think this year took everybody by storm. I think. Uh, 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 many unexpected things happen, uh, so so I don't know for sure. But um, from what from my reading, from uh, uh, my conversations with Saudi officials, uh, um, Saudi Arabia's uh, involvement in this and uh, in, in, in the Israeli-Palestinian issue has always been uh, uh, to play a leadership role in finding a resolution to the crisis. Uh, the idea of, of uh, uh, unilaterally or, or uh, 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 you know, uh, normalizing relations with Israel independently of the, of the Palestinian issue seems like uh, too sharp of a, a turn from its uh, historic uh, uh, role and its, its uh, and Saudi Arabia's historic policy. I mean, that's that's what it seems like to me, at least from now. Okay. Well, we could. Uh, we've been going for ninety minutes. We could probably spend another ninety hours talking to you about these various issues. So all that's left for me to do is to first thank you, Mohammed, for this really wonderful, thoughtful discussion, um, and to thank our audience for their engagement, for their great questions. And uh, Karim, any any last comments before we close this one out? Just to add my word of thanks to Mohammed. Uh, Mohammed, you've uh, been not only very thoughtful, but very candid uh, in your conversation with us. So thank you. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank we'll you very much, Karim. And thank you very much, uh, uh, Tarek. I appreciate uh, being here and uh, it's a privilege. We'll, we'll have to do it again. Thank you for listening. This has been Middle East Matters. I'm your host, Tarek Masood. Special thanks to Patrick and Daniel Lazor for music and to the incredible team at the Middle East Initiative, Julia Martin, Ava Weber, and Michaela Bennett. To stay abreast of new episodes, please subscribe to Middle East Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other quality streaming services. See you next time.